You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 171, UFOs. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is February 21st, 2016, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about UFOs. Unfortunately, I don't have access to the fourth dimension, as some uh, ufologists suspect, so instead I had to uh, save this week's notes in the third dimension over on my Commodore 64. So while I transfer my show notes back over to this computer from my C64. That'll give us a little bit of time to chat during this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. I talked on the last show about how I was having a string of bad luck with hardware. I had my laptop boot up into black and white mode for some reason. I had difficulty obtaining and getting a CRT monitor to work with uh, a DOS computer I was building. And then I snapped the power adapter off of my missed FPGA computer. So I thought by getting all that out of my system that my string of bad luck would be over. But no, shortly after I posted the last episode, I my computer started running slowly. I'm running Windows 10. I looked online at some guides, and one of the suggestions I found was that it might be... Uh, beneficial to check and make sure I have the latest firmware on my computer and that possibly upgrading my BIOS firmware would help the situation. So I did that. I have an Acer, (laughs) have, I mean had, an Acer desktop computer. I downloaded the latest firmware, which I have never upgraded. The computer was purchased in 2009. I ran the firmware upgrade from inside Windows. You can run it from DOS, but I felt pretty confident running it from inside Windows. Double-clicked on the file. It unpacked the firmware, got to about 75%, and then Windows 10 blue-screened. <laughs> that machine has never blue-screened on me before, but what a time it picked. Uh, it literally blue-screened as I was updating the firmware. I tried every trick in the book. I tried, I I found the jumper. There's a jumper on the motherboard that you can move back to the original position, which is supposed to restore your original firmware. That didn't work. I pulled the battery off the motherboard. That didn't work. I tried some different booting sequences that was supposed to get it to boot from an emergency USB attached device. That didn't work. And in the end, I managed with one mouse click to completely destroy my desktop computer. And, you know, I think of those type of warnings that we get, like a firmware upgrade is serious. Take this seriously, you know, close all programs, which of course I didn't do. 
I'm reminded of a friend of mine who every time he used to work on his computer, he would make sure that he was on a plastic mat. He was he would never do it on carpet. Then he would put on one of those grounding straps. You remember those to make sure that he didn't shock his computer and do anything like that. And we had some of that equipment available to us at Best Buy. And I used it a few times. And then you get uh, a little complacent, I would say. And it never happens. It never it never happened to me. I never shocked a computer and lost anything. I played console video games for years, laying on the carpet of my living room floor, switching cartridges and CDs out, and nothing bad ever happened. I worked on computers. I never grounded myself. I might touch the metal frame or a desk or something beforehand, but it just never happened. And so you you get in that mode that nothing it will never happen. And so I've never had a problem flashing a firmware. I've obviously we've all upgraded the firmware on routers and cable modems and all different types of devices. And there's always a chance that something could go wrong, but it never does. But this time it did. And so one of my credos that I've often said, and sometimes I forget this and I have to remind myself of it, but uh, I I used to often say, and I do uh, in in a weird way believe this, that when hardware dies, it's a good thing because I always replace it with better hardware. So Uh, Even when something dies and I know it's going to cost me money, the good news is I'm going to get something new. I did buy a new desktop computer. I went through Amazon because I used the affiliate code on throwbacknetwork.net. So I was able to kick some money back into our own network by shopping through Amazon. I bought a, I think it's called a Think Server from Lenovo. Uh, They have some pretty good deals. It was... um, uh, not as expensive as I thought. I didn't get an operating system because I already own a licensed copy of windows, but I did get, uh, I think it came with a three terabyte drive. Uh, it also has a SSD drive in it, which I, I reloaded windows onto. It's got 32 gigs of Ram. The thing screams. Uh, one thing I didn't know when you don't buy computers that often, sometimes technology changes and nobody tells you about it. <laughs> So I had no idea what a display port was. Maybe you know what a display port is. My last computer, I added a video card that had, uh, I, I had one that had a DVI slot. And then uh, when I upgraded my last one, I got uh, two HDMI slots so that I could run my, my dual monitors through HDMI. And so this uh, latest one has what's called display ports. I never heard of that before, but display ports. And this is where I think that they're just trying to get money out of us. Because after I got the computer and I'm shoving the HDMI cable in there, you know, over and over, and I'm like, this doesn't seem to be working. And then I read, you know, and I'm like, what's a display port? And I find out that it's uh, something similar to HDMI, but it's not exactly HDMI. But this is where I think that some of these things are BS, these types of technology. Because after I got the computer, I had to go back on Amazon and I bought two cables that were HDMI on one end and display port on the other. So that I could connect them back to the same monitors I have. And I think if you could just swap the end off of one and off the other, it just doesn't seem like it could possibly be that much better or that much different, you know? So, I mean, USB gave us an advantage over serial cords, right? I mean, you could, they were hot plug, you know, hot swappable, and you could plug them in, and, and it would identify and do drivers. You didn't have to reboot and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, if if you could just get an adapter that was serial to USB and it worked the old way, then 
what would be the point? So I, I still don't really understand what the difference between the two technologies is, and I don't care. Uh, the point of it is that I got two for another twenty dollars. I got two more cords, and um, now everything's working great. So uh, nothing has broke down since then. So I'm gonna hope that my streak of destroying technology is over, and I'm gonna move forward. I got some more work done on my DOS machine. I think I mentioned uh, last week that I had the DOS machine up. The uh, sound card I had put in there was a Sound Blaster Live, SB Live, and I could not get that to work in DOS. I've since found some articles and drivers that say it will work in DOS, but uh, I couldn't get it to work on this 486 of mine. So I went on Amazon again and found a Creative Labs Sound Blaster 16 still new in the box. And it was $30 with free shipping. So that's what I bought. I bought a brand new inbox sound blaster from uh, the 90s and swapped it right into the machine. And everything is working great. So I have a couple more projects that I want to get running on that thing. I want to get networking and USB both working in DOS. I know it's possible I did it on a virtual DOS machine. So it's just a matter of getting the right drivers I'll probably have to make another config just because by the time you load those drivers, I don't know how much room is, is left in memory, but yeah, it's more of just a, a principle of thing. So I, I want to get that up and running, but the DOS machine lives. Uh, and speaking of the DOS machine, I got an email yesterday or the day before from Rick Reynolds. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, he is one of the hosts on the Intellivisionaries podcast. He also does the holiday special podcast. Both of those are on Throwback Network. Uh, and Rick heard about my progress on that machine and offered me uh, a joystick, a gamepad, a Gravis gamepad that worked. It's a 15-pin uh, gamepad that works. Now, here's the funny thing. I have two or three things in my life uh, associated with either DOS computers or old machines that I have given to people. And I have said these words, I will never need this again. Here I am five years, 10 years later, wishing I hadn't done that. And so I gave my Gravis gamepad to someone. I don't regret giving it to them. They had a DOS machine that they were setting up at the time. And I literally said, I will never set up a physical DOS machine again. Here you go. And so I'm glad I gave it to that person. Uh, and I hope they got some use out of it. And here I am five or 10 years later, wishing I had another one. So Rick Reynolds came to my rescue. And he's sending that gamepad to me. So when I get that set up, I will be all set. I've already got uh, some games loaded over there, including uh, Mortal Kombat 2, which was one of my favorite uh, Mortal Kombats for DOS. So I've got that loaded up and ready to go. And I've got some, uh, I've been playing a lot of Rogue. I mentioned that, which is, uh, is such a basic game, literally a basic game. Uh, that it doesn't really need that much horsepower. And, and I started playing a couple of Lucasfilm's point-and-click adventures. I was playing Indiana Jones uh, and the Fate of Atlantis earlier. So it, it's been fun to mess around with. Uh, and speaking of messing around with things, I have been messing around with my JXD7800B. I think I got that right. It is the handheld computer. I bought this thing uh, over a year ago. And I just haven't had that much time to mess with it. But the other day I was, well, when I was reloading the computer, I had all this time to kill, you know, as Windows is loading and you're reloading software and just waiting. And I've had this thing sitting on my shelf and just haven't messed with it that much. It is a Android tablet with a seven inch screen, a quad core processor. But the real selling point is that it has physical 
joysticks and buttons attached outside the screen area of the tablet. So it, it feels more like a, it, it's almost the same dimensions as a Wii U controller, I believe, uh, because I know some people have picked up Wii U cases, carrying cases and used it for this thing. It has some internal storage and then two spots for SD cards. So there's 16 gig for the primary and then the external, uh, I added another 16 gig. So I spent some time over the past week copying ROMs over and getting things, uh, up and running. And that would be the primary use I would use it for, not for its Android capabilities, although you can play Android games on it, but I would mostly use it for emulators and most of the Android emulators out there, a lot of them uh, will auto detect this thing's controls right out of the box. And the ones that won't, there's a utility that comes with it that allows you to drop and drag, um, virtual connectors that connect the physical buttons and joysticks to the touchscreen controls that would be on the game. So if it's a game where there's uh, a virtual joystick on the touchscreen, all you have to do is drop the little picture of uh, the analog joystick on top of those. And then when you use the analog joystick, it, it is automatically pressing uh, those buttons that appear on the touchscreen. And it works pretty good. So, uh, you know, my uh, go-to stuff is Atari and NES and, of course, the C64. But this thing is so powerful uh, I threw a couple of PlayStation, the original PlayStation ISOs on this thing, and it plays them perfectly. Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, one of my favorite games of all time on the PlayStation. I uh, found, you know, dug out my CD, made a an ISO of it, and copied it over to this thing, and it plays it perfect, uh, which is hard for a lot of these things to do because, uh, you know, they stream so much digital audio and, and things, but boy, this thing did it perfect. So this... Uh, could be something I, I haven't traveled that much for work lately, but if I were, this is something that I would definitely throw in the bag and take with me. Uh, I need to get MAME set up, up on this thing next, but uh, it, it's Android, so it runs one of those older versions of MAME, uh, so it's not going to play, I guess, not a lot of uh, newer type games, but uh, as far as the old stuff goes, it, lo it looks great, so I've been having a good time playing with that. Uh, last, before I get out of loading time here, I want to mention that my buddy Earl Green from the Logbook uh, has started a Odyssey 2 podcast called Select Game. You can find it right now at thelogbook.com forward slash select game. Uh, I think he's already submitted it to iTunes. He's waiting for approval right now. But if you want to go ahead and get a sneak peek and listen to the first episode of Earl's uh, Odyssey 2 podcast, you can find it over there. <clears throat> we will be adding that to Throwback Network shortly. So anyway, congratulations to Earl for kicking off that new show. I know there was a another Odyssey 2 podcast I, I, that was planned. I don't think it ever got off the ground, um, but Earl is uh, well known as a Odyssey 2 collector. I know he has a lot of uh, uh, you know games for the system. He has a lot of good stories and memories of that system, so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that. So... Oh, speaking of hearing things, that is the sound of my 1541 drive uh, telling me that the show notes have finished loading. So if you have any feedback about this episode or any other episode of this show in general, you can email your feedback to me at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Drop me a message on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash You Don't Know Flack. Follow me on Twitter at Commodork, 
or leave me a voicemail on the podcast hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. With that, let's get started with this week's episode talking about UFOs. The modern history of UFOs goes back to June 24th, 1947, and that was when Kenneth Arnold was flying his private airplane over Mount Rainier in Washington State. And while he was out flying, he spotted these disc-shaped objects. There were five of them. And in his report later, a famous quote, he said they behaved erratically like saucers being skipped across the water. And so after the newspaper article ran the next day, that quote got pulled out, and that's where the term flying saucer came from. So when I was a kid, I was very into flying saucers. Uh, There was a lot of movies and TV shows and books, and we're going to talk about all those things. But one of the biggest uh, impact UFO, I guess, related memories of my childhood is when I saw a UFO. I was uh, playing football with a bunch of kids and, and as kids do, this game had gone on and the sun had gone down and, and we were playing football and all of a sudden it was nighttime and, and we were uh, in my next door neighbor's field. There's a big field uh, between my house and the house next door, another half acre lot uh, that was uh, undeveloped. And so we would play football out there and we were playing football in the dark, you know, under the street lights on the corner And someone said, hey, look at that. And we all looked up and there were uh, these lights, rotating lights uh, off in the distance a little bit. And everybody stopped. We all stopped playing and we stood there. And this thing, whatever it was, it got closer and closer. And, you know, I had seen... I knew about UFOs at that point. I knew about UFO abductions. I knew about, uh, you know, close encounters, things like that. And as this thing got closer to us, I thought, this is it. This is a UFO that has come to take us away (laughs) or do something, you know. And we all just stood. Nobody ran. Nobody screamed or anything. We just stood there in this field And when it got close enough, we could hear it. And what we heard was a helicopter. And as it went over, it had this LED display uh, underneath it. And it had a rotating message. And I think, if I remember right, it was advertising uh, a pizza pizza place. I want to say it was frozen pizzas, but maybe it was a, a pizza restaurant or something. But it... It went overhead and everybody started laughing, you know, and some of the kids were making fun of me. They, they were saying, oh, uh, yeah, Mr. Star Wars, you know, he thought that, uh, they were coming to take him away and all this. And I just kind of laughed it off, you know, but, uh, I, I never felt scared about that incident, but I always felt a little disappointed. Like I, I really thought that was going to be it, you know, that, uh, that we were going to get to see a, a real 
UFO. And ever since then, I've always uh, kept one eye up to the sky. Every time we go out at night, every time we go out on the back porch or on the patio or something like that, I always look up just to see, you know, if I see something that looks out of the ordinary, uh, you know, a lot of people are amazed whenever you see a shooting star, but uh, in Oklahoma, especially if you live just a few miles outside of the city, like we do, you see shooting stars all the time. And I think a lot of people don't see them because they don't look up. So that that's the only way to see uh, things in the sky is to look up. So I, ever since that, that uh, event in my childhood, I always make a point of, of looking up. Obviously the, the first experience I had with space and outer space and aliens was star Wars. That was in 1977. And I was, uh, just about to turn four years old when star Wars came out. I went to the movie theater. I've talked about this on other shows and the ship, the Star Destroyer, as it flew overhead, as I sat in the dark theater with the, the stars on the screen, it was so real to me. It was so incredible. It made such a strong impression that uh, that really, I think, is what kicked off my interest in UFOs as a kid. So I, I would definitely point some of my initial interest, at least, back to Star Wars. Now, around that time, there were a couple of different TV shows that also dealt with UFOs. The first was a television series called In Search Of. It was hosted by Leonard Nimoy, and it ran from 1976 to 1982. I used to watch it on TV all the time. I don't remember what channel it was on, but I know that whatever channel it was on, I watched it. Uh, And so each episode would be about um, something that would be, I would say paranormal. I think there may be some that aren't paranormal necessarily, maybe related to science. But uh, for the most part, those were the ones, the episodes that interested me, the ones that were uh, paranormal or supernatural uh, in theme. And episode 21 is the first one I found that was about UFOs. And I found that on YouTube recently and I watched it. And I definitely remember seeing that episode and seeing some of the same uh, clips, hearing Leonard Nimoy talk about (laughs) specific uh, UFO pictures. Uh, So that was uh, one solid UFO memory. And the other one was a TV show that was on for two seasons called Project UFO, which each episode of Project UFO was supposedly based on a investigation that took place by Project Blue Book, which we'll be talking about later in the show. Project Blue Book was the official government investigation into the UFO phenomenon. But Project UFO aired from 1978 to 1979. There were two seasons. I don't know if I've been able to find those online. I'm sure there are some on YouTube, but I don't know that I that they were ever on DVD or anything like that. That's something that would be interesting to uh, uh, track down. But they were fictionalized versions of those reports. So uh, sometimes the, the official reports would end and the official, uh, you know, report would say, well, that it turned out to be Venus. Venus is actually a very common thing that people mistake for UFOs because it's so bright. And when people drive around, it looks, it's far enough away that it looks like it's following you. And people have reported that, you know, a bright 
shining object is following them. It turns out to be Venus. So uh, some of the, I mean, there might be a report in Project Blue Book that ends with it being Venus, but on the TV show, they might leave that little detail out. <laughs> so as a kid, it made a strong impression on me because they were dramatizations of those events. Um, there were not only UFO shows on the small screen. There were UFO shows on the big screen. I mentioned Star Wars. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Time came out also in 1977. I don't think I saw that in the theater, but I know that I saw it on HBO. I have a a very specific memory where at the end of that movie, when the UFO uh, opens and there's the bright light that it was so bright that it caused our TV to flicker. Like it was almost like when a, an old monitor would reset, like it would degauss. Uh, it was doing that to our TV. The TV was, the picture was just like shrinking and turning black and, and going crazy because the, the signal of that movie was, I guess, too bright for, you know, we had a console TV, older console TV. Um, but that movie made a huge impression on me. And that is a movie to this day. If I watch close encounters of the third kind, there are two points in that movie that make me cry every single time. The first one is, uh, when the little boy gets abducted towards the first part of the story by the aliens, and at the end, when uh, uh, the aliens come out and they actually make contact with the aliens, uh, I get choked up at that scene every time. And that's, you know, maybe that, that little part of me that thought I saw a UFO in that field one day, that's what I had hoped, you know, that I would experience too. But was not to be. I experienced an ad from a pizza place <laughs> on a helicopter. Um, also ET, I think you had to be at the right age. And I was at the right age for ET. ET made a huge impression on me. That was 1982. When ET came out, I was nine years old. My dad worked at a printing company and was able to make photocopies of things for free, which not a lot of people could. And I remember he had got a couple of pictures of ET out of a coloring book and had made copies and I would hand them out at school to all the kids in class. And man, was I popular because <laughs> I was the, some kids pedal and candy and older kids pedal and, uh, you know, deal cigarettes and drugs, but not me. I, I handed out, uh, photocopies of ET coloring book pages. That's what put me on the map. Uh, ET, I think everybody knows the story of ET with Elliot, how he makes the connection with ET. And that's another movie that chokes me up. Uh, my dad did not care for ET at all at the time he was older. He, he told me later, he said he felt like it was a movie that was specifically made to tug at people's heartstrings, uh, and that it wasn't, you know, necessarily a good story. It was just meant to toy with people's emotions. But of course, as a little kid, I didn't see it that way. I thought it was an amazing movie, amazing story, uh, you know, of a kid and that alien and, and, um, you know, having that secret from all the adults, uh, and that, that really resonated with me at that time. I had a few books at that time that related to UFOs. And, you know, even before, well, uh, let's talk about the books first. The first one was uh, called the UFO Scholastic. Actually, it's called UFO Encounters. It was a scholastic book. It's copyright 1978. I still have the book. I have the book right here next to me. It's written by Rita G. Gelman and Marsha Seligson. It is 
80 pages long. I looked on Amazon. You can find used copies for a penny. I would love it if somebody bought a copy of it. <laughs> I love this book. And what's funny, uh, I, I think I mentioned I mentioned this on uh, Sprite Castle last week when I was talking about Valentine's Day and my wife. And when uh, the two of us moved in together, the first two things she unpacked was – uh, a framed copy of the three, like a framed photograph or a poster of the Three Stooges and her father's Commodore 128. And so by seeing those two things, I thought, you know, this is the girl for me. Like there's no better female match for me on the planet than a girl who appreciates both the Three Stooges and Commodore computers. <laughs> like this is a keeper. Um, but she has the same book. She has the same UFO Encounters book. We both got it. In kindergarten or first grade when we would do the Scholastic Book Club through school and we had both ordered a copy of it. So uh, we actually have two copies of this book on the bookshelf in our spare bedroom. This book uh, talks about – it has pictures of UFOs. It has all different kinds of things. It opens with a story that made a big impression on me as a kid. And the story uh, basically says – uh, that if you were to stop what you're doing right now and start making dots with an ink pen, you just start drawing dots and you cover all the paper in your house and your arms and your legs, your body with dots. And then you covered your house with dots and you covered your town with dots. And for the rest of your life, you did nothing but make dots, you know, you, by the time you die, you would not draw as many dots as there are stars in the galaxy. There are over a hundred billion stars in the known galaxy. And that fact uh, blew my mind as a little kid because, you know, you, you think, well, for each star, there's planets and, you know, there's galaxies and other galaxies and, and, um, uh, it just it was just mind blowing uh, to me that uh, <laughs> that there were so many stars out there, you know. So it really made me think. Well, there could be another one that looks a lot like Earth, or maybe it doesn't look like Earth. Maybe it has things living on it that don't look like people. Who knows? Um, but that the the book opens with that fact. There's some other uh, UFO related stories in the book that I'll be talking about shortly. Another book was uh, by Reader's Digest, and it was called Strange Stories, Amazing Facts. It's a big hardback book that my dad had a copy of. Our copy over time has fallen apart, but I've bought a replacement one because I love this book so much. This is one of those Reader's Digest compilations uh, where there are multiple chapters, and then each chapter has things that are themed together, like there's a whole uh, paranormal a chapter about ghosts and hauntings and things like that that would make it where I couldn't sleep at night. Uh, there were chapters about, uh, you know, rituals and, and weird things. And, of course, uh, the whole section about uh, true crime and, and uh, Jack the Ripper and spring Jack, all those, uh, th I, you know, it, what a horrible thing to give to a child to read. And I read that thing every day, every night. I would lay in bed and read these all these <laughs> torrid stories. Uh, from Reader's Digest. But of course, there was an entire section about UFOs, and I read all those UFO articles. And when you're a kid, you read all this stuff and you take it in as fact. You know, I mean, you see the photographs and they say, you know, this 
was never identified and you're like, oh, it's got to be, you know, got to be true. Um, on top of those books, I would occasionally pick up tabloid magazines. My uh, uh, grand, grandma, my grandparents that lived out of out of town, uh, she uh, well, she married my my grandpa later in life. And she was a, a house cleaner. She would go around. It was not like an official job. She would just, uh, you know, be like a maid kind of thing. Like she would go to people's houses and, and clean their house for money or something. Um, but a couple of her uh, clients got all the weekly, like Weekly World News and Inquirer and all those different uh, goofy tabloids. And she would save them. So when we would go down there and visit, there would be big piles of them. And we would dig through and find all the, you know, Bigfoot alien Bigfoot abducted my baby <laughs> type stories. Uh, so I remember, you know, I would always look forward to reading those. Uh, and also there were UFO magazines. I I had um, my, my other grandma would pick me up UFO magazines. She would find them at garage sales and things like that. So there were always those type of things. Also, as a kid in elementary school, our library had this, the section, it was in the zero somethings like zero one, you know, hundred or, or uh, zero one three somewhere in there or whatever. But it was the kind of like the unexplained paranormal section of the, the bookshelf. And it was right when you walked in the library. So when you walked in, you immediately turned to the left and the first and second shed, uh, set of shelves had those books. I remember there were all these books from uh, I didn't write this down. Daniel Cohen, I think, C-O-H-E-N. And he had a book on the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and Pyramid Power. And I would check each one out because uh, they'd only let you check out one book. And you would check a book out and read it. And I would turn it in and I would get the next book. And then I would go through because they weren't that long. And I would go through them all. And when I was done, I'd just start with the beginning again and just read the first one again. Uh, so yeah, I, w I was really into uh, all that kind of stuff as a little kid. So some of the stories that were in these books that made an impression on me, the one of the earliest stories was the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. This supposedly take place on uh, took place on September or in September 1961. Uh, there was a book written about it called The Interrupted Journey in 1966, and then they made a TV movie based off of that book in 1975 called The UFO Incident. This was the first uh, well-known story about an alien abduction. Betty and Barney Hill were a, uh, every, whenever you read this, it says they were an interracial couple. I don't know that that that's not important to the story, but I think it's, I think they say that because at that time it, it would have been an odd thing, but now it would be uh, a strange thing. Like if you were just reporting on a news story and you would say an interracial couple, <laughs> like, I don't think they say that anymore. Uh, so it, it, that's not important to the story, but, uh, Betty and Barney Hill were driving, and basically they saw something hovering over their car, their car died. And then later when they came to, they were driving and there was a big chunk of memory missing and they couldn't remember how they'd got from point A to point B. And so they went and got examined by a doctor and then they found these weird, um, 
spots on their elbows on one or both of them that could have been, uh, uh, well, there, there was like these little shapes that were showing. It was just all kinds of weird stuff, you know? Um, and this is one of those stories. And a lot of these old stories are this way that they weren't perfectly documented back then. So there's, depending on which account you read, uh, about their abduction, you know, some say that, uh, you know, things happen in different orders. So depending on the order that they happen would either lend credibility to their story or take away credibility from their story. But the problem with Betty and Barney Hill was, is that they were hypnotized. And, uh, after they were hypnotized, they came up with a crazier story. And some reports say that both of them were separated and hypnotized and both came up with the same story. But other accounts say that uh, Betty was hypnotized and Barney got to listen to that session. And then later he was hypnotized and came up with the same story. So uh, depending on which account of that you uh, read, you know, depends on uh, how you, you believe, but, but this was the first big one. And this is all, documented in that UFO encounters book, which is a book for small children. And it scared the hell out of me. There is a drawing. I think it's an airbrush painting. It's hard to tell because it's, it's not huge. It's like half a page on a small sized book anyway. And it's in black and white. It's been reproduced. So it's difficult to see. But when I was a kid, it looked just like a photograph to me of these aliens wearing, uh, you know, egg shaped helmets or whatever. And man, it's creepy looking. I used to just, you know, when, when my parents, we would go to the drive-in or something and I'd get under the blankets. I'd be <laughs> waiting for the, the aliens to come take us away, you know. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Betty and Barney Hill have both passed away. Barney died of a brain hemorrhage in 1969 and uh, Betty died of cancer in 2004. Um, and Betty, you know, did make... Uh, some rounds at uh, UFO conventions and things like this. So uh, I, I can't weigh in as to what actually happened to Betty and Barney Hill, but that was definitely um, the first big alien abduction story. And a lot of alien abduction stories that we've heard since then sound very similar to Betty and Barney Hills. So they were the ones that kind of created the framework, if nothing else, for that type of story. Rex Helfen. Is it Helfen? Helflin? I think it's Helfen. Uh, was a big, big story. Uh, Rex was a highway worker, which he worked for the city uh, in California. And uh, he would go out. His job was to, I think, look at like road conditions and things and take pictures. And he was driving and he saw a UFO. And so he, this is a 1965 and he had a Polaroid camera. So he grabbed his Polaroid camera and he took four pictures of this UFO. So there are three pictures of the UFO. And in the fourth one, there's just a smoke cloud. The UFO is gone. It has disappeared. And there is a smoke ring where the UFO uh, was. Uh, he got questioned by local newspapers and some other government officials. And then members from NORAD showed up and took his original photographs and people. So he, before that he made copies of them. So people have never been able to, or at that time, weren't able to 
study the original photographs, only copies of the photographs. And as we all know, a photo of a copy or a copy of a photo, I should say, is not going to be as detailed. So if there were things like a string (laughs) holding this UFO up or anything like that, uh, it would be more difficult to spot in a copy of the original photograph. When I was a kid, this UFO, these photos were argued greatly. Uh, People argued back and forth whether it was real, whether it was not real. And a lot of it was based on this guy's character because he was a trustworthy person. He was not interested. He didn't try to sell the photos. Uh, He wasn't, you know, trying to get famous. He just spotted this thing and took these pictures. Well, we have now better technology. Uh, And one of the things that happened was he took two of the pictures almost back to back. They're very quick uh, photographs, but he switched the uh, viewpoint of the camera slightly between the two photographs. So if you think about how a 3D film works, where uh, 3D movies are made by having two cameras set up in a uh, stereoscopic configuration so that one is slightly to the left or right of the other one. And when one eye looks at one image and one eye looks at the other image, it produces the illusion that you're looking at a three-dimensional picture. And so with computers, they did the same thing with his photographs because they are looking at the same way. And with computers, they were able to line them up, but one is slightly to the left of the other. And when they do that, it becomes pretty obvious that this UFO is not a large object far away, but a very small object pretty close up. There had always been some speculation that, uh, that it was a small object possibly attached, uh, you know, to a fishing rod hanging off of the roof or the cab of his truck, or possibly attached to the rear view mirror or the uh, side view mirror of his truck. And, uh, that does appear to be what it was. It also, in uh, later years, in the 90s, I believe, uh, someone identified that the UFO looked almost exactly like a specific railroad wheel from a railroad model train, which Rex Haflin happened to be into as a hobby. He had a large uh, model train set up in his basement, and uh, this wheel matched some of the uh, cars he actually owned. So that that's... Uh, a, a common theme that we'll, we'll hear uh, again later is that if you're going to do a, uh, or fake a UFO photo, don't leave the evidence laying around. <laughs> don't use things in your house. So the, uh, Rex Helfen, uh, Rex passed away in 2005. Oh, in 1993, uh, the original photo showed back up. He said members from the government showed up and gave him his photos back. Uh, and that, so that would have been almost, uh, what, 30 years after he originally took him, whether or not that happened and why NORAD would take him, who's to say, you know, uh, but he did pass away, but, uh, he, he is another guy who made the UFO circuits and he, um, always claimed that they were real, even though he, he kind of winked and nudged a couple of times that they may not have been. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, he did pass away in 2005. So whether or not they were real, he took that final secret to the grave with him. 
A couple other quick ones I'll go through quick. Uh, One was uh, Travis Walton. You may have – that name may sound familiar. They made a movie uh, based on this incident. He was a logger in Arizona Uh, in 1975. He disappeared for five days. Uh, He was in a car with five other loggers, and uh, they saw a bright light, and they stopped the truck. Travis Walton got out. He got zapped by a light from the UFO. These other five witnesses all passed polygraphs and said that they had seen this happen. Uh, The sheriff at the time said, quote, there's no doubt they are all telling the truth. Uh, Everyone pretty much assumed that these five guys had killed Travis Walton for some reason and buried his body. The police were out looking for Travis Walton's body uh, out in the... uh, uh, Arizona desert. And suddenly, uh, he showed back up five days later. And instead of telling the sheriff or anybody, he went to a medical, well, he went to a doctor, uh, and had a long examination, but then it turned out that that doctor wasn't a real doctor and it clouded the whole investigation. Uh, and so it, everything got messed up, but, uh, Travis Walton wrote a book about the experience called The Walton Experience in 1978, and later they turned that into the movie Fire in the Sky, uh, starring, um, I don't remember who starred, I know Robert Patrick was in it, he was the evil uh, uh, Terminator in Terminator 2, and Henry Thomas, uh, who was older at this point, uh, was also in the movie, it is a, uh, it's a horrifying movie. Uh, you know, as a kid, I always thought how wonderful it would be to be abducted by aliens <laughs> and that they would put me in the cockpit and we would go zooming around the, uh, the galaxy sightseeing. And that is not what happens, uh, to Travis Walton when he is abducted in fire in the sky. It is a horrifying nightmare inducing experience. Definitely do not watch that one alone late at night. Uh, then we have Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar was, uh, a little bit later. Bob Lazar claims that he was hired and worked in Area 51. He says he worked in an area called S4, uh, which is near Area 51. He says he was hired to reverse engineer the UFO that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, He released several uh, videos and books and even a model of the UFO that he worked on. Bob Lazar made a lot of money doing interviews. Uh, Nobody at uh, Area 51 claims that they know who he is. Uh, Robert uh, Lazar's story fell apart a little bit when uh, he also said that he had degrees from several universities, but the universities said they didn't have uh, any record of him being a student, which, of course, Bob Lazar said, of course they wouldn't, because the university has uh, uh, met with the government and they're trying to erase my identity. So uh, later on, uh, there was an investigation, and it was determined that there really was no S4 site either. So Bob Lazar's story kind of has fallen apart over the years, but if you were into uh, UFO stuff in the... uh, uh, probably the 80s, but definitely the 90s, then uh, you know who uh, Bob Lazar was. And finally, there was uh, the Gulf Breeze. And, and the reason why I put Gulf Breeze on here is because that was the last uh, UFO sightings that I think, I think it, it it marks the end of an era. And that era is UFO pictures taken of homemade models. Ed Walter's is uh, people that take pictures of UFOs are always 
selected, and they're always very unique. And what was amazing about Ed Walters is that uh, anytime he wanted, he would walk outside and UFOs would come to him and he would take pictures of the UFOs. And uh, he, he lived in uh, Gulf Breeze, Florida, and he would go, you know, to uh, like the edge of the ocean or wherever, uh, maybe it was by a lake or something. I know it was by water. And, and he would say, uh, oh, I took a picture of a UFO. And the next day, thousands of people would show up and, and sit out there hoping to see the UFO. But, of course, nobody ever saw a UFO except for Ed Walters. Um, and when people, like even people that want to believe in UFOs, when they look at Ed Walters' UFO pictures, they go, eh, they don't, <laughs> they don't look very good. They look a lot like a model, you know. And uh, Ed Walters moved. He moved from one house to another, and the people that purchased his old house when they moved in were cleaning out the attic and found a model of a UFO that looked just like, amazingly, all the pictures of UFOs that Ed Walter had taken. <laughs> and then Ed Walter said, well, see, that's how they discredit me. They they build a model that looks like uh, the UFO, and then they... They say that I'm a liar. And then amazingly, Ed Walters didn't see any more UFOs after that. Uh, but the new people did who bought the model. So, uh, But Ed Walters is, uh, like I said, it's kind of this dividing line because right after – this is in 1987. And after that, uh, you know, within a few years, we start having the internet and digital trickery and, and uh, such like that. So it kind of does mark an end of an era in a way. We had uh, Project Blue Book, which I talked about. Project Blue Book was a real uh, investigation that went on from 1952 to 1970. It had two goals. Number one was to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security. And the second goal was to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. Um, the when, when it closed... Project Blue Book finally put out their uh, final findings. They said that UFOs were generated as a result of uh, four things. Number one, a mild form of mass hysteria. Number two, individuals who fabricate such reports to perpetuate a hoax or seek publicity. Number three, psychopathological persons. And number four, misidentification of various conventional objects. You'll notice that none of their explanations were aliens from another planet who have traveled here. And one thing that they left out here, and, and may, well, maybe it's not left out, misidentification of various conventional objects would cover this, I suppose. Uh, but a lot of UFO sightings in and around, especially in the desert near Area 51, we now know were experimental government aircraft. Uh, there was a huge uh, boost in UFO sightings when we now know that they were testing the uh, uh, SR-71 Blackbird. We know that when they were testing the stealth bomber out of that same area, that there was an increase in uh, UFO sightings and reports. So, um, you know, I mean, technically that does qualify as misidentification of various conventional objects, but those conventional objects turn out to be weird aircraft or futuristic types of aircraft that people aren't familiar with yet. Uh, I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast, I know I mentioned on my blog that I recently watched uh, the entire Twin Peaks series. There's only, there's two seasons of Twin Peaks. And uh, in that show, we had uh, Major Garland Briggs. 
He was an Air Force officer, and he worked with uh, FBI agent Wyndham Earl, who turned out to be uh, the uh, antagonist against uh, the main character. And they both worked on Project Blue Book, and they had uh, determined that uh, Project Blue Book had something to do with the lodge that was always uh, (laughs) coming and going in that show. Uh, So people still talk about Project Blue Book to this day. Uh, the other thing that, uh, around the time when I first got on the internet, a big story was the majestic 12, the majestic 12 actually dates back to the eighties, but I didn't hear about it till I got on the internet. Uh, the majestic 12 was the code name of a committee of scientists and government people, uh, that was formed after the crash of Roswell. And so there's a lot of documents that supposedly talk about meetings of the majestic 12. Um, but, uh, the FBI looked at all the documents and determined that they were fake. But again, how can you trust the government to investigate government things? <laughs> so I don't know if I, maybe the Majestic 12 is real after all, but uh, it's pretty much uh, assumed that the Majestic 12 was uh, not real. Finally, in a lot of this early literature, uh, this is mentioned in that uh, UFO Encounters book again and in uh the uh, Reader's Digest book, The Amazing Stories, uh, uh, Strange Stories, excuse me, Strange Stories, Amazing Facts, uh, is The Men in Black. Now, these were not the men in black that we have come to know from the movie series with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, those are more comical, you know, people who investigate UFOs and stuff. The real men in black, if you ever read about uh, people's reports of men in black is scary as hell. And they are people who either appear to be, uh, androids, robots, uh, or aliens. There, a lot of people say that they, they speak in, um, weird, uh, tones. They sometimes, there have been reports that they, they sound like their batteries are running low. Like they, they will start to slow their speech down or slur their speech. There's a lot of reports where they have, uh, uh, started sweating and they have wiped off makeup that is concealing, you know, a different color of skin. Um, and these are the people that show up and interrogate people at their homes after they have reported a UFO sighting. I, I, you do not want to see the men in black, the, these men in black show up near your house. If Will Smith shows up, that's fine. You know, and he can save the galaxy, but, uh, these men in black, uh, were especially you know as a little kid the idea of of these people that would show up uh to your house i had nightmares about these you know and i keep saying the real men in black i mean the the men in black that were you know in ufo lore uh were were always terrifying to me so let's get up to the 1990s the 1990s kicked off uh in regards to ufos with the alien autopsy film. Uh, you may remember this. Uh, this was a supposedly a film that, uh, showed the autopsy of the alien that was killed in the Roswell, uh, crash of 1947. It was a 17 minute film released by a man named Ray Santilli. Uh, it was, uh, very, hotly debated whether or not this showed a real autopsy or not. There was a Fox TV special called alien autopsy factor fiction that aired in 1995. Um, 
it, uh, you know, they, they, there were all these varying reports that you would go to autopsy people and they would say, yep, this is how a real autopsy would be handled. Uh, you know, and, and there were shots in there of like, there was a control panel that had weird writing on it that had like spots for six fingers and <laughs> things like that. Um, it, you know, I remember at the time they, they, someone did some, uh, uh, scientific, uh, evaluation of the actual film, the film stock, and that the film stock was from that, the right era, but it was two different ones or something. And then someone said that doesn't make sense. But then they said, it does make sense because when they did autopsies, sometimes they would use the, whatever film stock was left over. So, uh, what ended up happening is in a, a series of uh, interviews later on, uh, Ray Santelli said that this was actually a recreation, that it was not a real alien autopsy, but that he had seen a real alien autopsy on film, but was not able to purchase it or release it himself. And so he created uh, this, uh, he calls it a restoration. He doesn't call it a, a recreation. Uh, or I guess maybe he does, but not, he, he doesn't, he, he claims that it's, it's fiction, but he claims that it's based on a real alien autopsy, uh, that he saw. And it was released. I have it on a VHS. I actually found it in a thrift store one time. Uh, it was released again on DVD in 2006. If you want to check out the alien autopsy, uh, fact or fiction special, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube as well. Uh, a few years after that, we had the alien interview footage. This was another big uh, media UFO type thing. It was uh, uh, supposedly an interview with a gray alien uh, that took place. Uh, the alien is behind glass and in a really dark room and looks a lot like a marionette or a puppet. If you've seen this footage, it came out. Uh, it was supposedly filmed in 96 and the footage was released in 97. I will add, uh, YouTube links to the ones of these that, uh, are on YouTube. I know this one is on YouTube. Um, the person who leaked the video was a man named Victor. Victor, uh, the good news is Victor has come forward and identified himself. The bad news is several people have come forward and identified themselves as the real Victor. So, uh, what the real story is, I don't know. But if you watch the film again, a lot of these things, even if you want to believe that there are alien, you know, autopsies and alien interviews and things like that, this one's not very convincing. I mean, even if you're a, a believer, it just doesn't like, how come nobody ever interviews aliens in a well-lit room? <laughs> or it's them outside walking around. It's never that it's always in a dark room with a weird angle and bad footage, which is what, uh, uh, this turned out to be. Then there was, uh, around the same time, I think it might've been a little bit earlier was, um, the UFO abduction. This is also known as the McPherson tape. Uh, this, here's the weird thing about this is that, uh, there was a special that came out called alien abduction incident in Lake County. Uh, that's the U S name in the UK. It was called alien abduction, the McPherson tape. And this supposedly showed a family 
being abducted by aliens. There was a birthday party that was involved. Uh, and, you know, there's lights outside. The party's interrupted. It is very creepy to watch. But this is a made-for-TV movie. If you watch it at the very end, it has credits. It tells you who plays all the people. So it's it's obviously a work of fiction. But then people said, oh, well, it's based on this earlier incident called the UFO abduction. And you can look that one up, too. If you look on IMDb, the same director is listed for both of them. Both of these are works of fiction. Uh, it reminds me of the original War of the Worlds with H.G. Wells. Uh, they're, these are movies, uh, but they are presented in a reality style, kind of like a, a found fiction film. Uh, so they're presented that way, but... Uh, they're not real, but sometimes people try to pass these off as, as being real uh, or being based on a real incident. But uh, the McPherson incident is not a real, wasn't a real incident. So, But it was a great time, wasn't it? If you're into UFOs, we had the X-Files. We had the movie Fire in the Sky. We had Stargate, which was uh, Fire in the Sky was 93. Stargate's 94, uh, which was all about uh, not only the actual Stargate, but uh, UFOs and how it related to, uh, you know, aliens and, and ancient Egypt. That was a really good movie. But in 1991 and 1993, two movies came out that ruined UFOology for me. <laughs> uh, the first is Terminator 2. And that came out in 1991. And Jurassic Park came out in 1993. I went and saw Terminator 2 at the movies, and as I watched Terminator 2, uh, we see Robert Patrick, uh, and I always remember his name because my name's Robert Patrick O'Hara. Uh, we see Robert Patrick turn into a liquid metal form and morph into different forms the scene that stood out at the very beginning is when he walked through the the bars uh, that are in the institution where they are uh, holding Sarah Connor. He just walks through them. And th when I saw that scene, that specific scene, that exact moment, when I saw that scene, I thought we can never trust what we see on video ever again. I mean, this was a real guy, as far as I could tell, and those were real bars, as far as I could tell, and he walked through them. Now, I know it's a movie. I'm not dumb. Uh, but, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I loved Star Wars, but there was no part of me that thought that a Tauntaun was a real animal. It was obviously a stop-motion creature, you know. Uh, Doug McCoy just did one of his last uh, crazy, creepy, cool movie podcasts about Clash of the Titans. I love Clash of the Titans, but when you watch it, those are obviously stop-motion creatures. They're not, you know, the Kraken doesn't look like, I'm not afraid that that thing is real, you know. But when I saw this scene in Terminator 2, I couldn't tell how they did those special effects. Obviously, the way they did it, we now know, is with the, uh, a CGI. But up until that point, you know, we had blue screens and we had miniatures and we had all these things and it was a new technology. The same thing with Jurassic Park. I remember the scene where the T-Rex has knocked over uh, the little safari truck uh, SUV thing and the kids are inside. And I'm looking at this scene and I'm thinking, uh, 
that those kids in that Jeep are real. So I know the kids are real. The T-Rex I know is not real. And the Jeep is somewhere in between the two. (laughs) I don't know if it's real or not real. I mean, the kids are in there, so it looks like it's real. But also the T-Rex is eating the tire. So it looks like it may not be real. But I just remember marveling at that and thinking, I don't know how they did this. And those two movies for me made it to where from that point on, I could never trust what I saw in video. I'm going to add a link to this YouTube video. Uh, in 19, uh, when was this? Oh, this is 2007. So it's later. Um, there was a rash of UFO sightings in, uh, Dominican Republic, which is a hot spot, supposedly Haiti. And this video emerged of a UFO sighting in Haiti. And I, I really, uh, if you go to, you know, podcast.robohara.com and look at the show notes, I want you to see this video because it's amazing. It is a UFO flying over some palm trees and it doesn't look like a blue screen. I mean, where the, where you think you should see the UFO behind the trees, you do, you know, and it flies overhead and the camera tries to focus on it and it, it eventually flies away. And, you know, part of me thought I can't trust this. It's video on the internet. I can't trust this, but man, it looks good. And when there are things that when it when something happens that's outside of our understanding, that's not a great way to put that. I guess when um, you know, like if we don't understand the technology behind something, then they say it's it's the same as magic. And so when you watch this, you think, I don't know how they did that. I mean, so it's obviously magic. It's a UFO thing. Uh, but the guy that made the film came out later and said that he made it with off the shelf software in less than twenty four hours. And he just did it as a advertising thing for his little special effects company. But when he put that video out there, you know, it, it was just like, I don't know. It it just kind of reinforces the fact that now you can't trust any of it. I mean, I would never, there's no single UFO footage, Bigfoot footage, uh, you know, anything like that, that you could put on YouTube that I would ever think is real because, I mean, the stuff that looks so good, we know it's fake. So, you know, if some of it's fake, I guess you can't say all of it's fake because some of it's fake, but all of it is suspect, you know? (laughs) So, uh, I have mentioned before that I work for the government. I work for the FAA, the federal aviation administration. And there was a little part of me that when I got hired on, uh, you know, I have access or had access. I don't do this type of support anymore, but I supported uh, all the databases that stored all the information on planes and in numbers and all that. And I would be lying if I said that I didn't uh, look through there to see if there was any secret areas <laughs> for, uh, you know, out of this world aircraft or anything like that. I didn't find anything. So if they have that stuff in a database, it's one that I didn't uh, have access to, which probably makes sense. We, we have all these, uh, giant hangars at our work that have some airplanes in it. We're, we're located right next to an airport. And, uh, I used to always imagine like, I wonder what's in there. Like if there's anything secretive, you know, and not a UFO, but you know, some kind of plane that people shouldn't know about or whatever. And, and I've gone into them later and usually what's in there is, uh, uh, somebody's car, when they're working on it, they pull it into a hangar. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no spy planes or UFO parts uh, in our hangar. So I'm sorry to disappoint everybody. 
For the last part here, uh, I wrote down a list of places that I have gone to, the physical places in this world that I have driven to that are related to uh, UFOs. The first is Mount Rainier. Now, I lived in Spokane, Washington for a year and a half, and I drove back and forth to Spokane, uh, from Spokane to Seattle several times. And when you do that, you can see Mount Rainier. And I have gone and driven near Mount Rainier just to say I was there. I did not see any flying discs or flying saucers when I was there. And Kenneth Arnold is long gone, God bless him. But, uh, uh, but that was the first one I think that I was able to uh, mark off my list was Mount Rainier. On our road trip a couple of years ago, when we drove all the way to Florida, we did uh, stop in Gulf Breeze, Florida, and I took a picture of the road sign that says Gulf Breeze. Um, I did not seek out any specific areas in Gulf Breeze where the UFO sightings were, but it was kind of uh, exciting for me just to say I had been in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Although, if you've been in Gulf Breeze, Florida, the most exciting thing that happens there, I think, is probably um, fake UFO sightings. I have been as close as you can to Area 51 without getting in legal trouble. My wife and I went on a road trip when we were much younger to go out to Carlsbad Caverns and the Grand Canyon. And I knew, had a general idea where uh, Area 51 and Groom Lake was. You can't get, unless you know where you're going, there are some places where you can get a decent view uh, of I say decent view, even with a, you need a high powered telescope to be able to remotely see anything now. But, um, because the government keeps buying land, uh, you know, and pushing the boundaries further and further out uh, where you can legally go. But we did get to a point where, uh, we followed down a road and we got to a point where there was a large sign that said, uh, um, uh, warning, you're uh, about to enter federal property, um, you, unless you have the proper clearance, you're not allowed. And then at the bottom of the sign says lethal, uh, force, uh, is allowed or something to that effect. Um, uh, but, uh, so that's as far as we went. I did take a picture of the sign at the time. I have a picture of that sign somewhere, but, uh, th- so that's as far as we went. We did not push our luck after that. Uh, I have been down the, um, Nevada State Route 375, that is a very famous road. That road borders uh, Area 51, the the land, so that is the road that is as close as you can get. Uh, There was a uh, a infamous white mailbox, which was a meeting spot for people that were going there to try and spot UFOs. Um, The mailbox got vandalized so many times that it eventually got painted black, And so people would say meet at the white mailbox, even though it was a black mailbox. And now I think the mailbox is completely gone. So you just have to know uh, where it is that you're going. Uh, But if you have a GPS, you can plug that in. It'll take you right to it. That is the uh, Nevada State Route 375 has been renamed the Extraterrestrial Highway. And there's a very famous little diner there called the A. Lee Inn. And so you can stop by the Ailey Inn and uh, look at all their decorations and have some out-of-this-world coffee. So uh, that's a a neat little area. We did go through Roswell, New Mexico. 
uh, a few years ago on a road trip. We stopped at the official Roswell UFO Museum, which is half of it's really cool. The first half of it I thought was really neat. They had a lot of the original newspapers and the broadcasts and things from that time and stuff like that. And then the second half of the museum is all, you know, paintings that people have donated and a, a fake, uh, alien autopsy with mannequins and stuff like that, you know, and, and it just got real hokey, you know, but, uh, I did get a alien antenna ball for my truck and, uh, it's still on my truck antenna to this day. <laughs> so, uh, but we did enjoy that, but the entire town of Roswell is, uh, I mean, there's a Mexican restaurant that has these aliens painted with uh, mariachi suits on. We went through McDonald's before we left and there's a huge mural on the side of the McDonald's that has, uh, the McDonald land characters in UFOs and things like that. So the whole town, uh, they're in on it. And obviously that's a big uh, tourist draw, uh, for, uh, Roswell, New Mexico. So if, uh, you're into UFOs at all, it's a, a fun place uh, to go visit. And finally, I, uh, went to devil's tower. And if you saw, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind at the end of the movie. That is where everybody is drawn to whenever uh, the, the main character is is uh, sculpting his mashed potatoes and saying this means something. He is making a sculpture of Devil's Tower. Devil's Tower is in South Dakota. Um, we went on a cruise, I guess it's been three years ago, to Alaska. We drove there from uh, Oklahoma. And as we were coming back, uh, across the interstate, we had gone to, uh, well, we were, we were up North. We had just got left uh, Yellowstone and we were driving across and, uh, we were going towards, uh, Mount Rushmore. And before that I saw a sign that said devil's tower. And I was like, what is that? And it clicked what that was. And it was like 20 miles off the route, but I had to go. I had to just had to go. And so we, we got off the interstate and drove 20 miles and then just, you know, drove up to this thing. And I took a bunch of selfies with it and, and they, they have a gift thing, but it was uh, about to close like a gift shop and a tour. So we didn't make it, you know, into all that, but I, I got some pictures of it. Uh, but, um, yeah, it, it was cool to see that just, you know, knowing it from uh, the movie and stuff like that. So it's, um, I kind of felt like the characters in that movie, like I was drawn, the devil's tower that I just wanted to see it, you know? So, uh, and I think that's all, you know, I have been in the Bermuda triangle. I don't, you know, some people associate the Bermuda triangle with, uh, UFOs. Other people say it's an area where there's, where navigation on ships gets messed up. So that is why, but on our honeymoon, we took a cruise from uh, Florida to the Bahamas. It was only four hours across, but, uh, I learned that that path does take you through the Bermuda Triangle. Nothing uh, odd happened to us at all on that trip, but uh, it was kind of exciting afterwards to uh, to know that we had actually been in the Bermuda Triangle. So, but that's all the places I've been. You know, I you know, I'll tell you something. I, I didn't I didn't write any of this down. I didn't write most of this down. But um, uh, the thing that sucks about getting older is um, that the world shrinks. Like time, uh, time compresses. You know, like when you were a kid, 
Think about how long spring break seemed, you know, like a whole week or even like an entire day of just out playing. And now the days just fly by, you know, now that I'm older, it's just uh, weekends fly by, weeks, sometimes months fly by, you know, and everything just seems like it's so much more compressed. And the world seems that way, too. So when I was a kid, I had all these big things about UFOs and and Bigfoot, and and you just thought that the world was so big that these things could be out there that we didn't know about. But the older I get and the more, you know, now that we have all this great technology and security cameras and all this stuff everywhere, and suddenly you don't see a lot of UFO sightings anymore. The ones you do see show up on YouTube, and magically only one person saw it, you know. I'm still waiting for that. Uh, you know, there's the old joke that there's always the UFOs always fly over, you know, Utah over some farm where there's three people, but they never seem to fly over in Times Square <laughs> where 10 million people would spot it, you know? So I guess that's the, the part that's disappointing as I get older is that, uh, uh, you know, everything just seems smaller. The world seems smaller and, uh, it kind of takes some of that away. So. I'm still got my fingers crossed. I'm still that little kid that uh, was out there in the field. I hope someday that uh, I'm proven wrong. But uh, as uh, I've got older and all these, the footage and the photographs and all the ones that people swore up and down were true when I was a kid that have been disproven over time, it it really it kind of took the, the wind out of my sails. So, you know, like Mulder. I want to believe, but I I don't know that I I can anymore. So, God, I keep looking over my shoulder now to talk about the men in black stuff. Uh, So anyway, this wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Uh, If you want to find more of these shows, go to Throwback Network. Oh, hands up! 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 Hands up